The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to stage a turnaround Tuesday after kicking the trading week off in the red. Calm returning to China overnight after weekend protests that called for President Xi to step down. Elon Musk taking on Apple over claims the tech giant is pulling back ad spending on the platform and may kick it out of its app store completely. Disney CEO Bob Iger having a tough talk with employees about the road ahead after Chapek. And why yesterday may have been the biggest online shopping day of all time. It's Tuesday, November 29, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Today, let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures after a mostly lower day for stocks yesterday. Futures right now are pointing towards a relatively muted open for cash equities trading. The Dow Jones implied higher by just 14 points the S&P up by about six to seven points and the Nasdaq higher by 46. We are towards the lower end of the futures trading range right now. So we'll keep an eye on that momentum. Checking on the bond market. Yields also a huge focus right now because of what's happening with the equity side of things and the global growth narrative. The benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury note yield a little below 3.68 percent right now. The two-year note yield 4.43 percent and the 30-year long bond just a hair below 3.73 percent. In energy, Oil prices trying to see if they can break some kind of a downturn here. We've seen some near to medium term, even longer term, if you will, downside risk in oil prices given the economic slowdown narrative. But right now in today's trade, U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI prices, $78.82, up a buck 59. That's a 2% gain. Two and a third percent gains for ice brand crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, up a buck 94 to $85.13. In cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Ether still very much talked about right now, but we're seeing a bit of a bid there for cryptocurrency prices. Bitcoin currently above that 16,000 mark, 16,518 and change, up about one and three quarters percent. Nearly four percent gains for Ethereum, currently seating at $1,218 rather for Ethereum prices. Let's check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade in Europe. Predominantly positive when it comes to the at least Asian trade. Jumana Bersechi is in London with the latest there. Good morning, Jumana. That's right, Dom. We have seen a rebound in Chinese equity stocks overnight, and not because of a big change in COVID policy, which is somewhat of a disappointment, but rather because regulators over there actually loosened requirements for the property sector to raise equity financing. This has led to a big jump in some of the property names, up more than 10 percentage points in the Shanghai Composite. As a total, it's up 2.3 percentage points, but the property sector is up more than 8 to 10 percentage points. Also remember that towards the end of the week last week, the PBOC also 
also cut the triple R by 25 basis points, providing extra liquidity. Hang Seng up 5.2 percentage points. We're also seeing a nice recovery in some of the tech names there, also in some of the consumer stocks, the likes of JD.com, Metwan, the food and delivery service, up about 8 to 10 percentage points. Over here in Europe, the picture is a little bit more mixed. We started off in positive territory, now dipping to negative. The FTSE 100 in the UK is the only little bit of green, up six-tenths of a percentage point. Commodities and miners leading the rebound over there. Zetradax in Germany down two-tenths of a percentage point. We're keeping a close eye on German preliminary CPI numbers to come out later today. So far, the regions have been disappointing to the downside, which is a bit of a surprise, again, spurring a rally in fixed income. And then finally, the Swiss index, you can see, is down two-tenths of a percentage point. One stock we're watching very closely there is Credit Suisse. This stock is now at an all-time low, Dom. Jumana Bersetchi with the latest on the London trade. Thank you very much for that. To our top story this morning, and relative calm returning to China overnight, as Jumana just reported, as demonstrations over new COVID rules and calls for President Xi to step down have so far failed to materialize for a second straight day. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest there. Eunice. Thanks, Dom. Well, residents were focused on any comments out of the uh, top health authority that could potentially lead to some sort of easing of COVID curbs. Uh, the good news is that the health authorities said that they're going to ramp up the vaccination effort among the elderly. Uh, but they did stop short of a mandate, which is something that a lot of experts believe is needed to try to get that vaccination rate much, much higher. Now, the uh, authorities have also said, uh, made some comments about uh, some of the complaints about uh, COVID curbs, not commenting on the protests, but saying that uh, the, the much of the problem, they said, was on the implementation at a local level. So in other words, we're not really seeing a big difference in uh, China's approach right now to zero COVID. So it's zero COVID plus trying to ease some of the more excessive measures on the local level. Now, one thing, though, that was really heartening investors was an unverified uh, report, or at least there's been some chatter, uh, Dom, which I think is interesting, making it very, very clear that this is an unverified report. But there's been some discussion about that the leadership could be looking for and may have already approved the idea of uh, forming a narrative uh, for the Communist Party for an exit plan. So according to, again, this unverified chatter that's been heartening investors, the idea is that President Xi has already asked the propaganda chief to uh, draft this narrative and that it would be that BF8 uh, variant is similar to the flu, so it's time to exit, and that the Communist Party has saved 6 million lives, and so therefore the Communist Party is great. Again, I can't reiterate how much, um, you know, over and over that this is unverified, but the reason why it's interesting is that you could see how the Communist Party it could be looking for a way to first change the narrative because um, as of right now, the narrative has been that zero COVID is really the only way. Eunice, uh, what, what exactly then, with all that in context, what, what's the latest on the demonstrations around President Xi's COVID policies and, and how Beijing is responding formally, aside from the chatter that's been going around that you just reported on? Right. Well, formally, the authorities have not mentioned the protests at all. Uh, they haven't acknowledged them in any way. Uh, but um, in terms of what's happening, a lot of the protesters have started to uh, 
report that um, they're being contacted by police, that uh, police have started to look for um, uh, uh, you know, anybody who was actually at those locations, the police presence around uh, the places where uh, demonstrators has gathered is um, very, very heavy. And in fact, um, pe- people are online are talking about how police have been stopping and making random checks, looking for foreign apps on people's phones, uh, VPNs, as well as even the word Udumchi, which was the uh, city where the demonstrations uh, first began. So um, you could see that the authorities here are really trying to uh, clamp down on the protests. And another thread that we're starting to see here is that the nationalist bloggers have started to blame what they describe as foreign forces for these protests. So what normally happens here is that we start to see nationalist bloggers blaming foreign, foreign forces. State media starts to quote them and blame foreign forces. And then eventually it gets to the top where it becomes much more official that uh, foreign forces are to blame instead of Chinese people speaking out because they're upset about the COVID curbs. All right, Eunice Yu with the latest there on the demonstrations, day two. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on, Eunice. To some of this morning's top corporate stories now, Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Dom, good morning to you. President Biden is calling on lawmakers to quickly approve a labor deal to avert what he calls a, quote, potentially crippling national rail shutdown as early as December 9th. Now, the tentative agreement, which has yet to be ratified by all of the country's rail unions, could be voted on by the House as soon as this week. At issue remains paid time off and sick leave. Bob Iger hosting his first company-wide meeting yesterday since returning to the top job at Disney last week. Iger told employees, quote, instead of chasing subscriptions with aggressive marketing and aggressive spending on content, we have to start chasing profitability. Iger adding his team will have to take a, quote, hard look at costs. And bankrupt crypto lender BlockFi is suing Sam Bankman-Fried to seize shares in Robinhood that the FTX founder allegedly pledged as collateral just days before his exchange collapsed. The lawsuit on Monday coming just hours after BlockFi filed for bankruptcy protection, having suffered, quote, severe liquidity crunch triggered by the failure of Bankman-Fried's FTX exchange, Dom. Silvana Hanau with the latest headlines there. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, Fed officials doubling down on higher for longer speak as investors try to reverse yesterday's losses. Plus, Elon Musk taking on Apple over claims it may kick Twitter off its app store. And then later on, much more on China and if this weekend's unrest is turning any heads in President Xi's inner circle. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Take a look now at futures. We are headed for a muted opening bell. The Dow's implied higher by just 36 points. The S&P higher by nine and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 40 to 50 points. This is on the heels of yesterday's major sell-off and fresh comments from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard and New York Fed President John Williams. Williams saying the Federal Reserve will, quote, need to keep restrictive policy in place for some time, end quote. Bullard issuing similar guidance in an interview saying the Fed has a, quote, ways to go to get restrictive and that rising interest rates will likely hold into 2024 in order to gain control over inflation. So let's talk more about what this means for the markets with David Waddell, CEO of Waddell and Associates. David, uh, the Fed speak is maybe not surprising. We know that the central bank needs to put the clamp and tamp down inflation. But what does this mean for markets now? Are markets now in a position where they can say, hey, we know what's going to come. We can now rally ahead. Or do we think it's still a headwind? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Um, I, I think the pivot that everybody's focused on is the Fed pivot, and that's the wrong pivot. The right pivot is inflation pivot, and we've already had it, right? Inflation topped at 9% on the CPI. Now we're at 7 7 or whatever, and it's a prize to the downside and likely will continue to do that for a little while. You know, when we have inflation declines, if you go back and look at the charts, they happen rather quickly. So the Fed is lagging uh, on the way up. They'll be lagging on the way down. Uh, my expectation and the good news that came out of their last release was that they're going to slow the pace of rate hikes. They may go a little higher, they said. They may do it for a little longer. But slowing the pace of rate hikes means the data is going to matter more. And so if we continue to see sort of a slide down in inflation levels, then they can talk tough all they want. But the thing I really care about is I look at five-year forward inflation expectations. Those are at 229 right now. Fed's target's two. So M2 is at the slowest growth rate in 30 years. I think they've done plenty of work here. It's filtering through the system. So the tough talk will continue. That's guidance. That's a policy tool. They may see recession as a policy tool, but it's a soft landing if we get one. And I'm just not worried about it. So, so, so David, I mean, to, to your point, I mean, first of all, it sounds like you are calling the peak in inflation. You, you don't think that inflation is going to come back in, in, in 2023. But, but you also mentioned this, this idea here that the forward expectations for inflation are relatively low. And, and by the way, they've been creeping down for a while now. How do you respond to those who say that those inflation indicators, tips, break evens and whatnot, are not accurate reflectors of inflation right now because of the dislocations in the fixed income market? I mean, maybe, maybe that's the case, but there are a hundred different indicators and they all point the same direction, which is that inflation is going to be falling, not rising. Um, and you've got momentum to the downside. Good inflation is deflating. You know, we're seeing what's happening in the housing market. It takes a while for shelter to roll over. And that was the only thing really holding that inflation report up last time because it was up 80 basis points or something. Um, so I, I think the evidence is there if you really dig through. So I get the narratives. But, you know, if you dig into the data and you really do your homework, 
Um, and you look at history, I mean, we're just in a period where you're going to see some of this disinflation. Now, that's not what the Fed really cares about. What the Fed really cares about is the softening in the labor market. So the market movers coming up are going to be the labor statistics. And if you look at recent jobless claim numbers, they've really softened rather quickly. So we'll get an employment report. Hopefully that'll be a little softer. But I think the pivot has happened. It's happened in inflation. That's why the market has rallied strongly and it had been overbought. We needed a day like yesterday to clear out some of the excess. But I think there's stability here. And as long as the dollar stays soft and, you know, 10 years stays below four and the inflation expectation index creeps back towards the Fed's target, then we get the Santa rally. All right. David Waddell claiming that the pivot you want to watch is the one in inflation, not the Fed. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Still on deck sure, for the show. Great to be with you. All right, good to be with you. With oil trading near its lowest level in one year, we speak with Goldman Sachs' global head of commodity research, Jeff Curry. He's live from the Goldman Sachs Carbonomics Conference. Worldwide Exchange returns after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for this morning's Big Money Movers. ASI shares are falling in Asian trading following a report that a woman has died after receiving the company's experimental Alzheimer's drug, which it is developing alongside with Biogen. It remains unclear, however, whether the death was actually caused by the drug itself. Nonetheless, that news putting some negative sentiment in some of those shares. Watching now shares of Sony as well, the Nikkei reporting that the company's new image sensor is expected to be featured in Apple's next series of iPhones slated to go on sale in 2023, along with other smartphone makers as well. Sony Group shares just down about 1% in Japan trading. And Snap will require employees to work from its offices 80% of the time starting in February. The new policy comes after the company said it would lay off 20% of its staff back in August in an effort to cut costs. Those Snap shares just about flat down fractionally in the pre-market trade. Turning out of retail with stores off to the races in that full holiday shopping spree mode. Shoppers breaking sales records this weekend despite concerns inflation will force a spending pullback. According to Adobe Analytics, consumers spent over $6.3 billion on Cyber Monday deals as of 6 p.m. Eastern last night. That number is expected to nearly double to up to $11.6 billion when the final tally comes in later on this morning. This adding to record spending on Black Friday and Thanksgiving this year with Adobe expecting Cyber Week overall, to generate over $35 billion in online spending, which would be up 3.7% year over year. For more on the outlook for the rest of the holiday shopping season, let's bring in Dana Telsey, CEO and Chief Research Officer at the Telsey Advisory Group. Uh, Dana, we turn to you for all things retail. This is like the Super Bowl season for you right now. I guess the, the overarching question is, is the American consumer in good shape right now? And should we expect that to continue this holiday shopping season? Hi, Dom. Thank you for having me. Hope you had a great holiday. 
I think overall it is a Super Bowl of the, of my year in terms of retailing. I think the American consumer is spending appropriately. You take a look at Black Friday weekend, and frankly, it began earlier. It began basically beginning of the week on Monday. If you really want to say it, it was basically with the second Amazon Prime Day that took place in October, where others discounted around it. We're gonna ha- we had a successful Black Friday weekend. The promotionals promotions were not overwhelming. We have a return to in-store shopping, and now you're going to go into a lull period. Typically, until the 10 days before the holiday season, it gets quiet because consumers know the longer they wait, the bigger the deal. And the biggest difference between this year and last year, retailers have enough inventory. There'll be inventory out there. They don't have to buy now because it won't be on the shelves. It will be a more promotional holiday season, but it doesn't seem like it's that aggressive. And I don't think anymore we're going to have the doorbusters at 5 and 6 a.m. It's a more civilized way of holiday, beginning almost at 8 or 9 a.m. on a Black Friday weekend. And I think the American consumer is doing just fine so far, even with that lower to middle income consumer stressed by inflation. They're watching for values. It's values and brands that make the difference. Now, Dana, civilized is a very nice way to put it. I'm going to use that. I'm going to borrow that from you for the rest of the day, because that's exactly what it was like for me. There wasn't a lot of rushing out. In fact, many of the online deals for Black Friday and Cyber Monday were started maybe two or three weeks ago. I I had stuff in my inbox saying that, hey, you can shop 20, 25 percent off here and there. So, so if it's not going to be if it's going to be promotional, but not that promotional and profit margins may not be squeezed by as much. Which retailers in your mind will stand out this holiday season? What I'm seeing stand out so far and who I think will be some of the winners, particularly in the soft lines area, I think it's going to be companies like Lululemon. I think it's Ulta. I think it's going to be Ralph Lauren. I think it's Macy's. I think it's TJX. I think you have the higher end like LVMH and even the tapestries and the capris. And then I think you're going to have the Costco's of the world really make a difference to Black Friday this year. We're going to have a holiday season that encaptures everyone, but everyone is particularly at the lower to middle income level. You have to be able to offer value because their dollars are stressed given higher living expenses of rent, food and gasoline. Now, as we head towards that home stretch and we do expect to see discounting happening in the next, say, two to three weeks ahead of Christmas, where would at least shoppers, not investors, where would shoppers find the best deals and for what? I think you're going to Macy's for clothing. I think you're going to go to some of the footwear retailers like Decker's in order to get some innovative product. I think you're going to go to Ulta for cosmetics. I think also you're going to go to some of the companies like Target and you're going to go to Walmart. And the reason you're going there, you're going to get a wide assortment and you're going to get value at the same time. All right. Dana Telsey with news you can use there on shopping trends right now. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll see you throughout the course of the holiday shopping season. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Still to come on the show, Goldman Sachs head of commodity research, Jeff Curry, his take on global energy markets heading into the key winter season. That conversation coming up on Worldwide Exchange returns after this. Stocks looking to recoup some of Monday's losses as hawkish Fed talk and ongoing unrest in China rattle investors' futures right now. They're muted. On the China COVID front, officials announcing fresh steps to try to shift from its zero COVID policies amid ongoing populist backlash. 
and Elon Musk going to war with the world's largest public tech company. Yeah, it's a big one. It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan, kicking off this half hour with stock futures pointing towards some modest, modest gains at the opening bell. You can see here the Dow is implied higher by roughly 48 to 50 points. The S&P higher by about 11 and the Nasdaq higher by just around 59. Now, let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Dom, good morning to you. Elon Musk taking on Apple, lashing out at the tech giant regarding several matters involving Twitter. Musk tweeting a series of claims against Tim Cook and company, including saying it had threatened to remove Twitter from its app store as a part of its review moderation process. Now, he likened the move to a suppression of free speech. Musk also calling out the iPhone maker for pulling back on advertising on the social platform, as well as its 15 to 30 percent fee on app developers. Apple has declined to comment about Musk's tweet. Leon Black is facing a new lawsuit. The former head of Apollo Global Management is being accused by a woman of rape at Jeffrey, Jeff Epstein's New York City townhouse in 2002, according to court filings. Now, Black's attorney tells NBC News her client plans to defeat the baseless claims. Black stepped down as head of Apollo after an independent review of his ties to Epstein last year, which found he wasn't involved in Epstein's criminal activities. And Shanghai Disneyland Disneyland shuttering its doors once again just four days after reopening. The theme park making the move amid China's latest efforts to combat rising COVID cases there. Now, it's unclear when the park will reopen. This marks the third time this year that Shanghai Disneyland has been shut because of China's zero COVID policy, Dom. All right, Silvana Hinao, thanks for that. Goldman Sachs hosting its Carbonomics event in London, bringing together CEOs to discuss the key issues facing one of this year's hottest sectors, and that's energy. Our Steve Sedgwick is at the event and joins us now with a very special guest. Steve. Dom, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, a lot of big topics here, including innovation, security and affordability as well. But let's go right back to the crux of the issue with Jeff Curry. Great to see you, sir. Here, of course, he's global head of commodity research at Goldman Sachs. Let's start right at the root of the story as well. You, Jeff, like a lot of other people, thought the price was going to be higher this year of the underlying commodity. Oil, Brent, WTI as well. You've been steadily cutting your price target. I think you're now down to 100 bucks for the fourth quarter for Brent as well. What changed? Is it just about China uh, and the COVID restrictions there or has something else changed? Well, I, it, it's a combination of factors. I think first and foremost, it was a dollar. Um, you know, like the, what is the definition of inflation? Too much money chasing two conditions, too few goods. The too few goods condition is still there, but we have a lot less money. Take, take the yen. The yen went from 100 to 150. That means in Japan, there's 50% fewer dollars to chase oil. So that's factor one. Mm -hmm. Factor two, as you point out, has to do with COVID in China. And by the way, it's big. It's worth more than the OPEC cut that, you know, for the month of November, just put it in perspective. And then the the third factor is Russia's just pushing barrels on the market right now before that December 5th um, deadline for the the export ban. So you put those three factors together, Markets have tanked, but, you know, the medium-term outlook for 2023 is still very positive. You know, we stick to our guns of a $110 forecast for next year. 
But that path between now and next year, well, there's a lot of uncertainty around it. I've spent more days than I care to remember standing in Vienna trying to work out what OPEC are doing as well. Before that December 5th level on Sunday, we've got a meeting of OPEC Plus as well. I did not foresee them having to scramble to cut barrels as well. What do you think they're going to do? Well, you know, they, they go by the data, uh, data dependent, and... They got the, they the price. They got, they, by the way, they got the demand decline right in the month of November, um, and demand's probably heading south again in China, um, given what's going on. You know, whether it's a, I think the key point with China right now is the risk that you get a forced um, reopening. That means it'd be self-imposed lockdowns. People just don't want to get on trains, don't want to get on, you know, go to work, um, and demand goes further south. So they got to deal with the fact that hey. Demand is down in China, you know, prices reflecting it, um, and do they accommodate that weakness in demand? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a high probability we do see a cut, depending on, also, you're going to get a response out of China this week as well. We've got some questions for you from our great friend Dom in the, in the studio. Hi, hey, Jeff. Jeff, it's good to see you here, and thanks for joining us here on the show. I, I, I wonder, I know, I know that you're an economist and, and a commodity strategist by trade, but, but I'm sure that you've noticed the dislocation, the divergence that we're seeing between, say, oil prices and energy stocks and companies overall. I, I wonder, from, from your conversations in your world, how are people explaining it? Why are, why are energy stocks so bid when oil itself is so offered? Is there any explanation that you've come across that makes sense to you? Um, you know, it goes over those three reasons I just gave for oil prices going down. The situation in China, we know there's a high probability they're going to be reopened by 2Q of next year. That path to reopening is highly uncertain, and it has a big negative impact on prices right here, right now. But the equities are keying off that reopening in 2Q, because remember, they're forward-looking, expectation-driven assets, while oil is a spot asset dealing with the weakness in China today. Second factor. Russia's pushing barrels on the market right now, anticipation of the December 5th um, deadline. We know that's going to pass, and that really doesn't change the longer-term balance. So, again, equity investors looking through. And then, you know, when we think about the, you know, the situation with, with the dollar, most people are forecasting a weaker dollar going into next year towards the second half. Um, and as a result, again, the equity investors would look through. Um, but I also want to point out, there is a catch-up game going on between oil prices and, and the equities. Yes, the equities have regained some of the distance, but go back to 2017 and look at the gap between equities and the oil price. There is a big gap that needs to be filled there, meaning that the equities are still far below the oil price, so looking at it on a multi-year horizon. Uh, and Jeff, uh, uh, one, one more question from me here. When it comes to the the, the, the oil forecast that you have. Uh, oftentimes, we, we talk about the supply side a lot. We, we key on OPEC plus announcements and speculation. It, it seems to me as though so much of the narrative has been driven on the demand side these days. To your point, what's China going to do? What's the global economy going to look like? Who's going to be consuming oil? Is the predominant narrative in 2023 in your mind going to be more supply driven on oil or more demand driven on oil? I think it's going to be more demand-driven, given the fact that you're likely to see a sequential improvement in both economic activity as well as in 
um, you know, underlying commodity demand, particularly with a reopening in China. And you think about, you know, Europe. You know, it's paid the price for that energy crisis when Russia cut the gas um, output. You know, you look at industrial output, it's down. It's likely to improve as we go into next year. Um, also in the U.S., you're likely to see, you know, the Fed hitting some type of, you know, at least slowing down on rate hikes and potentially hitting, you know, the, the, the terminal rate. All of that points to sequential improvement, and I think that's going to be the narrative. Because, as you just pointed out, the equities are pricing in the forward. Why? Because everybody believes the supply story. What is missing right now is the demand story, which is what's hurting front-end oil. That begins to improve, and I think that narrative will shift to you know, being focused on sequential improvement. Jeff, I think it's fascinating the point you were making to Dom about the value of corporations, the Exxons, the Mobiles, the BPs, the Shell, compared with the underlying oil price. But actually... When you look at their performance, it's been really solid, despite the fact the cost of capital has gone through the roof on both sides of the Atlantic. I think you've got a bit of an explainer here for us, what's going on historically in terms of the relationship between industrials and value stocks and the interest rates we're seeing. Well, we, we came up with the term for this back in 2002 in February when dot-com was getting crushed and the oil companies were going up. We called it the revenge of the old economy. Yeah. I thought it was unique to 2002. We're seeing it again today. And what I'm beginning to realize, this is your typical inflation duration trade-off. What do I mean by inflation duration? Let's go back to the 1960s. You had low and stable inflation, very low interest rates, investors chased a duration. What was duration then? The Nifty 50, Coca-Cola, Gillette. Um, let's go to the 1990s. You had Excess commodity supply, low and stable inflation, relatively low interest rates. What do investors chase? Dot-com boom, duration. What do they do in the 2010s? Chase duration, same story. And then you had a demand event. LBJ's Great Society in 68, China in 02, and then COVID stimulus in 2020. Then that exposed the severity of the underinvestment and that revenge of the old economy. Inflation starts to rise, and then your interest rates go up. Higher interest rates do what? They cause investors to bring that duration in. And we think about oil companies, industrials, all the old economy is short duration. Tech and growth is long duration. And you can think about this whole idea, low inflation in the 2010s, long duration. Mm -hmm. And then we go into the period right now, higher inflation, shorter duration. And that's like it's a dynamic and we can go back to 60s into the 70s, 90s into the 2000s, and the more recent period. So what do we do this? We've just had a weaker CPI print by a decimal in the States. We're hoping for more of the same. We think it's turned. We know the Fed is telling us now that actually the pace of rate rises going forward will perhaps not be at the 75 basis points. We're looking at the PCE deflator this week as well. If things are changing on the inflation front and the interest rate scenario, what does that mean for the oil majors? Well, when we look at the underlying you know, longer term story. The core problem with the old economy is this idea of underinvestment. When they were chasing duration, they underinvested in the old economy and oil companies. This is the, what we need to deal with. We're going to enter a major CapEx cycle, both green as well as in oil, metals, and everything over the course of the next five to ten years to solve these problems. That's going to put a bid in all of these old economy companies. So the bid remains. Jeff Curry, love to see you. Thank you for hosting for today. Good to see you, sir. Jeff, of course, is the Global Head of Commodity Research at Goldman Sachs. Tom, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you very much, Steve Sedgwick and Jeff Curry as well. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, Beijing's next steps around COVID. China expert Robert Kuhn breaks down the new moves by officials 
to combat rising case figures and whether a bigger pivot on zero COVID rules could be coming in the coming weeks and months. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Turning now to China and the relative calm returning to the country as demonstrations over new COVID rules and calls for President Xi to step down have so far failed to materialize for a second day. Officials holding a press conference today over the ongoing COVID restrictions showing no official signs of easing. A policy move something could actually create an economic opportunity sometime down the road. So joining me now is Robert Kuhn, a long-term advisor to China's leaders and multinational corporations doing business in the region as well. He's also the author of the new book, How China's Leaders Think. Robert, I, this is a, a, a scenario custom made for your expertise. Can you take us through, a, I've heard so many times in the last couple of days, this idea that these protests are the biggest thing since Tiananmen Square. And I want to know if this is your opinion, because I remember tanks in Tiananmen Square, and we're nowhere near that right now. No, that's for sure. Uh, I think that's an accurate statement in terms it's the largest since Tiananmen Square, the protest, but uh, it's not anywhere near the same significance. I think we have to look at the protest very differently, and it is directly a result of the frustration, understandably so, of uh, effectively a lockdown now for almost three years in, in different forms, from invasive testing on a regular basis to actual lockdowns and being shut in a uh, one's apartment uh, for long periods of time. Uh, so that frustration is entirely uh, understandable. Um, the other kinds of uh, 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 demands in terms of the government, in terms of freedom of speech are there, but they're really a, a small part. They're derivative as opposed to primary. It's an important point. The tension in China it, it, for the government is between opening up and freeing the economy and freeing the the, the people from this uh, terrible anxiety that they're under, and the 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 likelihood, which uh, the leading uh, officials say, of a very significant outbreak. The variant in Beijing. Um, is significantly more transmissible than Omicron, and Omicron was significantly more transmissible than the original COVID-19 virus. Uh, Chinese vaccines to the original virus were not as effective, as we know, as the Western uh, uh, mRNA vaccines, and, and the low um, vaccination rate, which hopefully is increasing. You put that together, and Chinese officials were really worried that there would be tens of millions of cases and, and millions of deaths if they would open up so that you have this tension on both sides of, of this uh, of this uh, really a no win situation. So um, after the 20th Party Congress, the they they refined the the um, the, the zero uh, uh, covid uh, restriction. They had 20 different regulations to put in that modified it didn't change it, but modified it. Uh, the best predictions were are and still are that the the minimum time will be after the so-called uh, two sessions in uh, in March, the annual government meetings. Uh, then after that, people were hoping for for some kind of a significant opening up. That's not clear to me that that will happen. I think we will uh, we will continue the way things are. I don't think there's a, going to be a major policy shift. Uh, they'll continue with this uh, 
a differential approach to lockdowns, a more nuanced approach in the 20 measures, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, I think the protests have gotten the attention of senior leaders. There's no question about that. I'm not sure it's going to influence them that much. They've obviously put massive force on the, on the, on the streets. So uh, I don't expect to see continuation of the protests. But I think the point was made. Uh, and, and it's a pretty powerful point uh, from wide uh, part of the, the, the Chinese population. So officials will take that into account, but they're not going to just suddenly open up and expose themselves. Uh, I think we have to wait for a Chinese m mRNA virus uh, a, a vaccine uh, to, in, order to, um, in order to give the officials confidence of a significantly more opening up. And, of course, an increase in the vaccination rate, particularly elderly people who have a low vaccination rate so far and are obviously the most vulnerable. So there may be changes in, in that policy on, on the on the edges, but I do, I do not see a significant change uh, for the foreseeable future. All right. Robert Kuhn, author of How China's Leaders Think. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. As we head out to break, a quick programming note. Pro Week rolls on today with a special hour-long interview with Fundstrat's Tom Lee. He's answering your questions directly at cnbc.com slash protalks. It'll all begin at 3 p.m. Eastern time today. That conversation, a very fun one to everybody out there who's got a lot of interest in crypto and the markets and overall worldwide exchanges back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Stocks looking to mount a Tuesday turnaround after kicking the new trading week off in the red. Futures right now pointing to some marginal gains at the opening bell. For more on the trading day ahead, let's bring in Tiffany McGee, the CEO and chief investment officer at Pivotal Advisors. She's also a CNBC contributor. Also, Margie Patel, senior portfolio manager at Multi-Asset for All Spring Global Investments. Ladies, thank you very much for being here both. Uh, Margie, perhaps we'll start with you on the macro story. Is this a market right now that is still very predominantly driven by Fed speak and interest rate direction and severity? Yes, everything the Fed says, people watch and the market takes a little zip up or down because of that. It's remarkable, though, how far Treasury yields have come down, uh, even in the face of conflicting information from the Fed about are they aggressive, are they not. But Treasuries, to me, are telegraphing that the Fed is going to slow down the rate of increase. Now, Tiffany, w with that in mind, as you as you lay out an investment strategy for your clients, is there anything that concerns you about that interest rate macroeconomic narrative? Is there anything out there that we don't already know? Or is this just about kind of adjusting and fine tuning positions for your clients, given that overall story? Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think there's anything out there that we don't already know. I think the big news this week is clearly going to be the November jobs report. And so the bottom line is bad news for the job market is good news for the Fed, right, for for the Fed to start uh, reducing reducing rate hikes. And so, you know, they'll need to see a movement in a certain direction uh, to, to reduce the rate hikes. And so the key metrics I'll be watching are jobs added, unemployment rate, and uh, the wage growth. And so, you know, we basically need the amount of jobs to go down, <laughs> the unemployment rate to go up, and wage growth to go down for the Fed to really make a move uh, in this last meeting. Margie, the, the inflation story is, is top of mind for so many out there right now for good reason, because interest rates have been controlling the, 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 the direction of valuations. Valuations have been coming down because interest rates are higher. There is now an alternative out there to put your money besides stocks. If that's the case, how long do investors have to stay more defensively oriented 
when can they feel like they can go back into some of those growthier stocks that have been leadership for the better part of the last decade or two? I think what we really need to see is what is happening with the economy. The Fed has tightened very aggressively, uh, a record increase as from the beginning of the year till now. And we really don't know if that's going to affect the economy. Uh, many analysts are thinking we may see a true recession in 23 because of this aggressive tightening. So I think it's a little early to say, OK, it's time to jump in because price earnings ratios are down, because if we have a recession, we may well see earnings go down, too. And that would say to me that growth stocks may not be relevant to propel themselves up. So we're sort of watchful waiting here to see what happens in the real economy. So, so Margie, if I could follow up on that, uh, if that's the case and that is your thinking and current construct for, for, for evaluating the market, are there still stocks out there that you think are attractive or, or, or that you would put on your shopping list? Uh, yes, I think so, because uh, the stocks are reasonably priced and you never really know when the bottom is to jump in. So we like the technology sector, particularly semiconductor sectors, which have gotten hit very, very hard because of the, the oversupply and some weakening demand in some areas like PCs. But we think looking beyond, say, mid-year, we may see the inventories work through and those companies, the leaders, begin to have a growth path upward. And also, we like the defense companies. They are defensive, as the name implies. Uh, a lot of their revenues are coming from governments, so they are going to be cut. And they're high-quality companies with reasonable dividends. So we think that's, that's some pretty good places to put some money right now. All right. So that's on, on her list for Margie. Tiffany, I, I wonder, this is also a retail-centric time of the year. It's a seasonably strong time for the market. The retail narrative is so much a part of the overall market, especially in the last couple of months of the year. I wonder in your mind, is retail a part of your game plan in the coming months? It is, Dom. And so right now, I like the specialty retailers. Um, they've actually feared well, especially for, for Black Friday. Uh, two names that I like right now uh, and actually have liked for, for quite some time is Ulta Beauty. Uh, they actually report earnings this Thursday. They feared, feared well uh, despite market declines. It's, almost, it's up almost about 11% year to date. And also Victoria's Secret, they also report earnings actually on, on Wednesday. Uh, they're up about 29% in the past three months, still down year to date. But like they've got decent, ca- decent cash flow, um, relatively um, fair valuations. They've got 20% of the U.S. lingerie market and 30% of mass fragrance of the U.S. mass fragrance market. So we think that they're really positioned to, positioned to continue to do well. And Margie, uh, one last word from each of you both here. I, I wonder what the biggest fear that you have right now is. Or is. Is the market bottom in or is there still something else that could take us down towards those lows or beyond? Uh, well, I think the biggest fear is really the Fed. Uh, the Fed historically has over-tightened, caused a recession. It almost looks like they're on that track now because of raising short-term rates by over 350 basis points. So that's really my main concern. Will they bring on a recession next year and uh, drive up the unemployment rate, which, of course, is very bad for those people who lose their jobs. So we're, we're on the sidelines, uh, but we're a little concerned about the Fed activity as a main place of risk. And Tiffany McGee, last word to you. Are, is the bottom in or do you think we go lower from here? Uh, I hope so. But, you know, I, I think that we're going to be in this kind of like weird uh, place, at least for the next couple of months. And so, you know, you, you, you asked about fear earlier. You know, I don't like the word fear. You know, scared money doesn't make money. Uh, so as long as you kind of stick to the plan and figure out, you know, kind of plan out your tactical moves of, of your portfolio from now to the end of the year and all into uh, into a Q1, I think you'll be good. All right. Tiffany McGee, Margie Patel, thank you both for being on the show. We'll see you soon. 
That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Stock futures right now pointing to some modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow is implied higher by just about 20 points right now after a sell-off yesterday. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage. It comes up next. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.